book of Colossians, so I would invite you to open up to Colossians, and today we're going to focus on verse 18, uh, the first chapter of Colossians, verses 18 through 20, and I have entitled this sermon, Christ the Savior, as last week we considered Christ the image of God, and so today we're going to make this brief transition from the supremacy of Christ as the creator of all things both visible and invisible, um, in the heavens and on earth. And th this is a, a, a cross-dimensional. Sometimes we think of just uh, the created order as being the material, but this again reaffirms us that it's both the tangible and the intangible. The visible, that which we could see, and the invisible, that which we can't see. And so verse 18 picks up, and this is a very dear and close verse to us here at Clovis EV Free. Why? Because if you kindly look to the left hand, your left, upper right hand, or upper corner, we have Colossians 1.18 as a key verse for our community. And listen to what it says. And he is the body of the, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. There's that word again, all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Dear friends, this is the word of the Lord for us. This is the word of the Lord for this local body today. And so I want to afford you three things that really jump out and stand up uh, to me in this part of the scripture as we transition from this focus on Christ being supreme over all the creation to now he is supreme over the community of believers. So whereas you might have some traditions where the role of a pastor takes that, 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 that role, that headship of a church, we here at Clovis Free believe that it is Christ and Christ alone who has authority over the local body here and also has authority over what we call the Big C Church the universal church of Christ. All believers that live in different places all come under the headship and the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first thing I would like to, to, to leave with you this morning is this. Christ, as we, as we understand conceptually from these verses, Christ is the source of life, direction, and authority of the church. Now, um, I know that I have several conversations with many leaders and elders here at the church. The question always comes back, what is your vision for the church? What are you dreaming specifically for this church, for Clovis EV Free? Well, my friends, the first thing I always learn through Scripture is you sit at the feet of Jesus and you get directions from Him. It would be a dangerous precedence for Pastor Pablo to say, let's do this, 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 and that. 
without sitting and listening. This is why God gave me two years. <laughs> and extra large, I, I would add. So that I can listen. So that I could glean. So that I could discern. So that I could pray. And yes, there's an element of human involvement in that. But at the end of the day, it is under the Lordship of Christ he would have for us as a local body here. And so this is very important as we consider. The scripture once again tells us this first part of verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, using a metaphor, the church. Uh, again, th this is very, very um, interesting in Paul's use of the word body and, and, and the church. Because again, for the first time here, he goes from just the local uh, group of believers, those in the city of Colossae, for example, believers in Laodicea. And now he gives and paints this cosmic vision or what some have called this universal vision of the church as it was expanding in different cities and countries. And so the church was going out from just being this local group in Colossae to having a greater impact. The believers in Alexandria, the believers in Greece, the believers in Rome, and other more parts of the world as the gospel had been spreading out. That is a beautiful thing. Because we here at Clovis... We're not the only church that exists. We are greater. In our movement, we are part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. We have over, we're about 1,600 congregations throughout the country. Together, we become part of a larger body. But then when you start adding different denominations, then we represent the whole church of Christ. And then you add the, 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 the globe to that, churches in China, churches in Russia, churches in Turkey, churches in, in, in Latin America. And then you start getting that whole universal picture of the body of Christ. And that's a beautiful image that he's been. And it is that image that Paul is saying, he is the head of the body. Notice in the use of this word, he gives this absolute identification Christ alone is to be identified as the head. The head. That means he is over the church. Here's a few connotations that I got that help me understand this headship of Christ. The head suggests that he's the authority over the body. He is superior to the body. In ancient literature, it also means that he directs and he is the life of the body. And in the body, the body finds unity in the head. He is also the head, sustains the body. And in the context of Colossae, the body finds its origin in the head. This is what Paul is saying, that he is the head of the body, the church. Now we're going to jump into a few other things, but that's just the first one for you today. I wanted to set that in your, in your mind because I think uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 really helps us unpack this. And, and listen to what it says. It says, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. And listen to what it says. He is the head over every power and authority. 
He is the head over every power and authority. I once had the privilege of sharing this uh, portion of the scripture with about 150 people that, that were part of this program called the Coachella Valley uh, um, uh, Rescue Mission. And so 150 people that attend these chapel services are all homeless. And as I was unpacking what it is that, that, that Christ is the head over, and then I asked the question, how many of you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior? And all these hands went up. And then I asked the question, when you say Savior, you mean he's the one who's redeemed you and saved you and, and, and given you a new identity before and a good standing before God? And they said, yeah, yeah. And everyone started like shouting and clapping. And I said, let's unpack the word Lord. Because here he says he's the head, he's the authority over all ruler and authority. And I said, is he the ruler and, and, and final authority even? Even in your addiction, in your rebellion, in your attitude? Is he more powerful over your struggles, your temptation? How about your fear? How about your anxiety? Is Christ the head even? Does he have more authority over those things? Not many hands went up after that. But this is what Paul is trying to speak. Something, some heresy, some false teaching, some movement, some undercurrent was going on that was trying to erode the position of Christ and his authority and his rulership over the church. And this is something that nobody, in, in, I haven't read any scholar that has put his finger on what that heresy was. There's some potential theories about that. One of them was Judaism. One, of, one, of, one other theory was paganism of the Roman Empire. A third theory was, it possibly was Eastern religious mysticism that was creeping into the, the, the church. In other words, syncretism. Anything that begins to dilute the gospel and the headship of Christ and his authority over our life, especially over matters of faith. So, as we get into, into this, 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 what I would call the, 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 the juicier parts of Colossians, and we start unpacking some of the more prescriptive and, and, and the, more, um, uh, 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 the, the more instructive part of this text that begins to get into behavior, into conduct, into the way we are to address our lives. May we never forget we are not moralist. We are saved and because of Christ's work in our lives... We respond to be more like Jesus. And so, that's just the first part here. I, I think one, one other text that really helps unpack this headship of Christ is what Paul described to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22. And it, it reads this way. It says, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's an interesting 
description of the church. Not only did the deity, as we're going to read in a little bit, dwelled in Christ, but not only does a, 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 a born-again believer now abide in Christ, but how different is it and how does it change our perspective of life when we as a body of believers understand that Christ dwells in the church? We don't ever think about it that way. His presence, the communion of the Spirit, the exaltation of the Father through our praise and worship. And so this is a beautiful reminder for us to consider these dimensions of the Lordship of Christ. And see how it extends, which takes us to the second thing. Christ is not only first or creator of all the created order. But listen this, and, and, and pay attention to what the, the, the tone of this text is, is teaching us. Because it's not only teaching us about the here and now, about the present reality... It also has a, a, a element of eschatological dimension. He is the Lord not only of the created order, of those visible things that we see, but he is also the Lord of the new creation. Notice what the text tells us in the second part of verse 18. He is what? The beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. What is meant by beginning here. I think one of the greatest translations. And you know we, we always discuss. Well I like the King James version. Because that was the, the version of the 15th century. The only problem is. None of us speak 15th century English. <laughs> so this is why other versions are helpful. You know a, a version like the Good News Bible. Well that's a translation pastor. That's not a version. Yeah but it also took some scholarly effort. To understand and, and, and have practice integrity with it. So here's what the Good News Bible translated this very first part of. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. When you read that in the Good News Bible. It says the sources of the body's life. Or the, sources, the source of the body's life. That's who Jesus is. What a beautiful thought. What a beautiful amplification of what the scripture is saying. And this is why we say that he is the source of life of the church. Consider perhaps the words recorded in the gospel of Revelation. Or, sorry, not the gospel of Revelation, but the letter of Revelation. Correction. As this author called John wrote in chapter 1 verse 8, he says the following. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And notice this is a direct quote from the Lord himself. Says the Lord God. Who is. And who was. And who is to come. The Almighty. What a great reminder. Of who the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the church's beginning. The church receives its life. From the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord lives. This is why. All others. Can be raised again. See. As we said last week. 
Christ isn't, this isn't describing an origin for, for the Lord Christ. It's talking about position. It's, it's talking about a rank. And he is above all. And this is why, again, like I said, when you read scripture, Jesus wasn't the first one to be raised from the dead. But here's the beauty of scripture. Everyone who had been raised from the dead died again with the exception of Christ. Christ lives forevermore. And it is because of his resurrection that those who die now in Jesus continue to live. And this is true. Again, we read this in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 25 through 26. When Jesus went to raise Lazarus, he said in verse 25, Jesus responding to I am the resurrection. Notice what the scripture says. I am the resurrection. And the life. He's both resurrection and life. The one who believes in me. Will live. Even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me. Boy. Listen to the words of the Lord. He will never die. So what is death to the believer? Unlike the unbeliever who doesn't have hope. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a funeral. I, I, as a professional eulogist, I've done various uh, uh, celebrations of life services and funerals. Some are very difficult and some are very more expressive than others. Usually, what I find is when faith isn't part of the person's, that, that the deceased person, there usually tends to be a bit more sorrow and pain and agony for the deceased. There's something different about the person who dies believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior that drives the world's nuts. How could you be joyful? How could you celebrate of the loss of life and yet you're singing of joy and hope and celebration and feast this is what the Roman Empire did not understand about Christianity when, when it accused Christianity of practicing uh, cannibalism well look they eat the flesh and they drink blood <laughs> how is that possible this is why the, the writers of the New Testament would say, these things are not discerned in the mind. They are discerned by the Spirit. And only those of the Spirit can understand what the Spirit is teaching. So there, there's this element there, right? And this is why the, the Lord Jesus Christ, hey, he's not dead, he's sleeping. But notice, I am the resurrection and the life. There's something about Jesus. That is so supreme. There's something about Jesus. That he's so preeminent. There's something about Jesus. That draws us. This is why we at Clovis EV Free say. In all things. Christ. Supreme. Right? And so this is very important. So when I started thinking about this a little bit more, I, I was drawn to Paul's description and argument. When the church began to argue about what to eat. Some of you are vegetarian. God bless you. 
Some of you are carnivorous. God bless you too. I, this is perhaps why I love the message, right? That, that, that transition message. Because um, um, uh, our dear friend there had described it this way. If you like prime rib, God bless you. If you like broccoli and vegetables, God bless you too. Whatever you like, do it in faith. And, and this is, this is and in that midst of that whole argument in Romans chapter 14, verse 9, listen to what Paul, you know, he gets into this argument and then he just describes this uh, 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 doctrinal statement and he makes this affirmation. And he says the following. I'm going to read from verse 8. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So either we, li- we die or we live or we live and we die we belong to the Lord. We belong to the... For this very reason, Christ died... Notice what, what, what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 14, 9. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life. So that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Notice the cross-dimensional lordship of Jesus Christ that includes both the living and the dead. He is Lord of all. This is very important for us. This is why the believer can embrace the next chapter. This is why we can embrace the next step in our growth as we're going to study in next week's sermon. But again, the connotations of this... is beautiful because he was the first from the dead. Meaning that because Christ lives forever and he did not die again, he offers life to those who come and believe in his name. He is the Lord of all. He reigns. He defeated death. He will put an end to death as the scripture ultimately reveals to us in the book of Revelation and and 1 Corinthians 15. It also means, once again, that he is both in life and death, both life and death, are under Christ's authority. Life and death are under Christ's authority. Again, the scriptures told us this, right? In in Colossians uh, uh, 1, verses 15 through 17, it's Specifically tells us this. Finally here. Finally here. We need to consider not just the Lord's supremacy over creation. Not just his supremacy over the church. But I think this text really speaks to us about Christ's supremacy over redemption. Over salvation. And and notice here, Christ... As I stipulated in this third point, Christ is the fullness of life that people seek. Now, why would I write it this way? Christ is the fullness of life that people seek because he provides true pleasure, reconciliation, and peace with God. The text is going to unpack that for us as we read verses 19 through 20. It says, for in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay? The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now this this is going to rock your theology. Because again, when we think of reconciliation, we're only thinking about salvation in people. 
Yet when we read the book of Romans, it talks about creation yearning and crying for the day of redemption. So it, it, really, it really challenges us. What is this text really saying? What is, what, is, what is reconciliation really all about? Because only in Christ we find that fullness that we as humankind are seeking in other things. For some people, an education fulfills them. For others, a job, a career. For others, their finances. For others, perhaps the attitude of self-fulfillment. Whatever it is that would fill you, I would suggest here and now. Christ. Christ. And Christ alone. And in him, and being in relationship with Jesus Christ, you will find full fulfillment. And so, and so, we need to unpack this just a little bit more. Here's a, a little um, literary exercise for you. When we say the fullness of God, you need to observe this very closely, especially in verse 19. Here, here, here's a little grammar exercise for you. When you think about this conjunction, at the very start of the verse 19, it says, for... Right? It says, for in him, all the fullness of God. For. When it says for, what is it describing? It describes three previous clauses that you find in verse, at the end of verse 18. What are the first, what are the last three clauses that you find in verse 18? Listen to this very carefully. For he is the beginning. For he is the firstborn from the dead. For that in everything he might be preeminent. Did you catch that? Did you catch those last three clauses of verse 18? That verse 19, that conjunction reiterates. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. And that he in all things is preeminent. And you know... That conjunction in verse 19, 4, also, also indicates the reason for stating the clause in verse 15. When he says, for the Son is the image of the invisible God. Glory to God. Hallelujah for that. And it is in Christ, his person, his incarnation, that Paul is discussing this to the believers in Colossae. Why? As Paul Deering um, noted, because the Colossian heretics were trying to paint Christ as insufficient when the gospel teaches and preaches for us the sufficiency of Christ in his person, and his work. And we're going we're gonna to unpack this a little bit later on. But all philosophy, all theology that begins to put barriers in your relationship and your growth to Jesus are all man-made. It is Christ alone who should be the foundation of all of our theology. So whatever obstacle, whatever barrier, whatever traditions we have... Whatever roads or numbers that people have to fulfill, all of that become nothing next to the preeminence and supremacy of Christ. 
This is the philosophy of the Reformation. In Christ alone. The word of God alone. Grace alone. And so this becomes this melody. Now, again, if you're following with the text and, and, and all of the, 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 um, what we're learning, I love this definition of what reconciliation is. And I took, it, I took it from the Westminster's understanding of reconciliation. This is what the, 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 the creed of the Westminster's uh, defines reconciliation as. The restoration of harmony between parties who have been at variance or indifferent. What comes to mind when you read this? Genesis chapter 3. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? The fall of humanity, the fall of man. Something was broken, my friends. Not just in the relationship of humankind to the creator, where men rebelled. Men became indifferent towards the plans of God and his purpose for humankind. To the point that it affected its ecosystem. And today, we have things called climate change. We have pollution. We have the deterioration of the elements. Now, I don't know where you land in all of that. But nobody can deny that something's happening to our nature. Whether you believe that's a consequence of sin a fallen state, or you just believe that's part of man's lack of stewardship. Either both, in my opinion, are the, the consequences of sin. A conse the consequences of people trying to live without and coexist without God. And yet the scripture declares to us that he is preeminent, both in the created and in the invisible. And this is a beautiful thing for us as believers in Christ because then we draw to the power of his reconciliation. And our standing and our approach, especially around Christmas time, when we tend to shy away from coming to the real significance and understanding of what Christmas is about. And I'm sorry, it's not about Santa, it's not about Rudolph, it's not about the... I know you guys like tamales and I know you like tacos and I know you like, but you know what? It's more than that. Christ, as I said this Friday, Luke 2 11, today in the city of David, a Savior was born. Christ the Lord. And so, this is why when we think about what baptism is. What baptism is. Baptism is very important for us. As you will witness this morning. Let me, let me offer you. Because. See this baptism. Is, is a beautiful thing. Because th first of all we understand. It was an ordinance established by the Lord himself. Matthew 28. Uh, 18 through 20. The Lord himself uh, 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 did this. But what is baptism really all about? Well, first of all, 
again, it, this is the end result of Christ's work in the life of the believer. So, when a person responds to what Jesus has done in their life, they publicly proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Therefore, baptism has a point of entry into the visible body of believers. It's kind of like when you get married. I, 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 I um, you know, I, I, I wear this ring on my hand, right? It doesn't want to come off now, but, but you know, I, I wear this ring. And this ring basically is a symbol. And one day, I wanted all that were, all the people that surrounded me to know my love for Soshi. And so we celebrated through a wedding. And we invited all our friends, as many of them as that could fit, and they all came. And publicly, I declared my love and my commitment, and I took vows to be faithful until death do us part. Well, baptism is something similar, if you will, if you will allow me to use that metaphor, similar in that we publicly declare that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 declares. And here's something beautiful about baptism. Baptism is not about what we do, but baptism is about our pledge of faith and our promise to follow Jesus Christ in all his ways. That is what our friends are going to do this morning. They're going to publicly declare by faith, that they are committing, taking vows, taking an oath to follow Jesus, right? All the days of their lives into eternity. So, baptism is beautiful. Why? Because it has two symbolic representations. When a person is immersed in the water, when the person is immersed in the, in the water, they are identified with Christ's death, but thank God we don't stay underwater. I know, Sparky, you had some concern that you might be kept in the water a little bit longer. I'll make sure that they don't. <laughs> um, but when we are immersed in the water, we are identified in Christ's death. But thank God we're not just immersed in the water. We also come out of the water. And when we come out of the water, we are identified with Christ's resurrection. This is why Paul would say the following. In Romans chapter 6, verse 2 to 4, he would say, By no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism. Into death in order, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This is what our dear friends are proclaiming. They are dying to themselves so that they could be resurrected in the power of Christ. So this morning, would you, would you, dear friends, help me celebrate, help me celebrate, because baptism isn't just what the person does. It's also the public affirmation of the church affirming that our dear friends are 
followers of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we will celebrate the public declaration of our dear friends who have said, Jesus, Jesus, you are the Lord and the Savior of our lives.